Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. What is the contemporary? How do we build and inhabit our city in a way that gels with who we are and who we're becoming? How do we grow and work together as a community without stepping on each other's toes in haste, without getting slowed down and frustrated with red tape and liability? What is design within all of this? These questions and more get answered in this episode of the Working Together podcast. It's a special one. It's a recording from an event held in Victoria, B.C., the city I currently hail from, called Onward City. And the speakers are Whitney Davis arts educator in town and librarian of note with a 400 square foot house. Jill Doucette, the founder of Synergy Enterprises. Craig Dykers, a visiting architect uh, who also happens to be the co-founder of Snowheta, an international architecture firm of note. Helen Marzoff, the executive director of Open Space. Jonathan Tinney, the director of sustainable development and community planning from the city of Victoria. And of course, hosted by friend and collaborator of Working Together, Caleb Bayers of Cast Projects. This is part one of a wide-ranging conversation about contemporary culture, public space, and the forces that shape a city. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you everyone for coming, and, and thank you for tolerating a, a little bit of chaos. Um, I first wanted to thank everybody who helped make this happen. Um, We are delighted to be hosting Craig here in Victoria tonight. Um, And we sort of threw this together at the last minute, knowing that he would be in town. And we really wanted to have you guys hear some stories about the projects that he's worked on. And frankly, I'm kind of using this as an excuse to learn about these extraordinary people who are sitting here. I know each one of them, and I have a very specific relationship with each one. And... um, So yeah, I want to thank, uh, first of all, Ross Taylor for hosting us here tonight. Yeah, thank you, Ross. It's a a beautiful space, and um, it's one that he's opened up to us in the absence of many other, or in the absence of really any other spaces quite like this. Um, I also want to thank Luke Mari and Purdy Pacific Properties, um, Ryan and the team at Arise, I'd like to thank MetaLab and uh, Category 12 and uh, Vessel uh, Liquor Store for helping with the, with the booze. Mm-hmm. Hannah and, and my wife, Hannah Lee, mm-hmm. who has helped just put everything together. <laughs> um, she made sure the food happened, as did my mom, who's right here. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a family affair. <laughs> you can see we kind of like... It's a, bit, it's a bit chaotic, but I just love bringing people together. And um, this is what chaos looks like in uh, Victoria, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
they're prettier surroundings here than most of the chaos that we deal with. Um, so I guess I'm going to sit down because we can all hear me now. Um, and I, I have to be honest, I didn't prepare that much because I, I, I haven't spent as much time as I would like with all the people sitting here. And I guess I said we were going to have a conversation about um, contemporary culture, public space, and the forces that shape our city, or a city in general, and how cities are built and how things happen. And um, I think it's a big, big topic. There's a lot to try and unpack in that. Um, but I think the best way to do it would be by way of sort of storytelling and anecdotes as opposed to technical details about specific projects because everyone here has done so many amazing things. So I'd like to start by introducing the way in which I know each one of these people sitting here. So I think I've known Whitney Davis the longest. Um, I used to spend time uh, in her family's house on the peninsula, which her father built. Um, after moving here from Vermont, New um, Hampshire? California and Massachusetts. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, seem, I seem to remember New England for some reason. New England. It's Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. yep. um, and I got to know their family in this amazingly beautiful home. And it just had a lot of love in the space, and I just always felt really comfortable there. So that's how I know Whitney. She's now uh, a librarian, an arts teacher, and a mother of four. She lives with her husband, who's a timber framer, and they live in a 400 square foot handmade house in Fairfield with her four kids. For now. Six of them. For now. <laughs> <laughs> to be able to do that at all is astonishing, especially when you know, people want the biggest house they can find. By the way, I know an interesting, uh, strange statistic about librarians because I work with so many libraries. Apparently, it's the profession that has the most body art, um, tattoos, and piercings of any other profession. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, it's so counterintuitive, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, you think everybody, but no, they've got like I've all got these a, things well, right it's, here. It's true, it's true. There's, <laughs> a, few, there's a few here. Yeah, it's <laughs> most librarians I know of. That's cool. I, I guess I fit in then. Yeah. <laughs> I know Jill. She's a, uh, a wonderful friend of both Hanalee and I, and she's a consultant here in town on sustainability issues. She's, she works with a lot of the businesses with which we work. Um, Big Wheel Burger, Habit Coffee, anything else? Lots more. Lots more. <laughs> you can ask her. I hope, that, I hope that you guys feel free to kind of like go get drinks as the evening goes on and you know, talk amongst yourselves if you get bored or whatever. I think I just want to have sort of a nice social vibe in here. And ideally, you'll come on this bike ride that I've been organizing tomorrow and we can continue the conversation there. Um, so. Next, I know Helen, um, who I met when I was trying to figure out what it meant to be an artist or try to be an artist or something. And um, she runs Open Space Gallery in Victoria, downtown on, on the bottom of Fort Street, and has seen a lot of interesting things go through there. And one of them was me living in the gallery because I was asked to be in a show, and I didn't have any work to put in the gallery, so I oh, said. Oh, I didn't know that part. Oh, you didn't know that part? <laughs> well, I was just making so much stuff at the time and just giving it out and. No, I thought it was the work. It, well, I didn't know it was the work. I sort of, 
I guess maybe I pitched it that way, but it was just sort of my life. It's always like one place to the next. And it, and, and it was an odd idea, but Helen jumped through all of the hoops that she had to jump through in order to make it, um, make it happen. And it was an incredibly memorable time for me. Not the most enjoyable, but it was memorable. <laughs> and I know Jonathan Tinney just threw, by the way, Jonathan is the head of sustainable director of planning director of planning for Victoria and we've had several conversations over the last maybe year mm -hmm. I'm not sure how we got introduced first but we we just you broke a zoning code somewhere actually you know you know I I think I got in touch with Jonathan because I, there were some projects that I wanted to do and I wasn't sure if I would be allowed to do them and so we just started talking, and Jonathan would always say, just do it, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, that's in the Victoria um, zoning code, like number paragraph two, just do it. <laughs> or, or just don't ask it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, this is, maybe this is one you might not want to ask. <laughs> Can everybody hear all the panelists OK, by the way? Um, and then, Craig, I met. Um, like end of last year, earlier this year, when I called them up, or some friends and I was called them up. Was it pre-Trump era? I think it was. Might have been. It was, I, I remember it was happy times. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was. Oh, right, was it well, I, I can't remember. But yeah. um, we had a phone call about um, Quadra Island and, and some property that Hannah and I have got up there and some projects we're working on and thinking about. And... Um, Craig answered the phone, sent, sent us an email, and pretty soon we found ourselves in his studio um, talking about the projects that he's working on. And now he's out here talking with all of us. So, um, and Craig uh, is a co-founder of an architecture firm called Snowheta, and they've done too many incredible projects to, <laughs> to list in one, in one go. Um, we have three, three in Canada. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I mean, we have uh, one in, uh, two in Ontario, and one in, uh, so uh, Kingston, Ontario, and Toronto, and then one in Calgary that's under construction right now. The the library. And then we have a tiny little garden that we made in Quebec. A tiny uh, little garden. Yeah, it's for a deer. It's mm. not even for people. It's just a garden for a deer. Did, how, how did did you just built it in the middle of the forest in the middle of nowhere? And we actually put a little camera, and we got a couple pictures of some deer hanging out in it too. So. Is it is it uh, just a study? Is it is no, it? No, it was a real thing. We made it. But the, is the camera to study the deer? Oh, you, we you... had it up temporarily just to see if any deer would actually use it. Okay, I'm curious. I'm curious to. <laughs> I'm curious to know more about this. Hey, deer have feelings too. It's yeah. a different kind of public realm. Yeah, <laughs> Hanalee and I deal with. Yeah, habitat. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Hannah and I deal with that, that different kind of public realm because we um, raise alpacas. So we're always in this, yeah. other, this other kind of realm for a while. Um, but I thought that this conversation would go by defining con what is contemporary and then talking about how the idea of contemporary relates to public space and then how that goes on to forming a city. Um, but I thought perhaps the best way to start thinking about what contemporary means is to try and understand timelines and how things change over time. So 
The first question that I had, I'd, I'd like to start with the same question for all of the panelists and then finish with a similar question for all the panelists. And the first question, um, anybody can jump in and answer, but I'd like to hear from everybody, is what were your parents doing when they were the when age we that were you conceived? Because <laughs> I just learned that I learned that the other day. It was kind of weird to hear about that. But yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe not what what they, what what were they doing in that? Question? <laughs> but where were they? That would maybe be a better question. <laughs> now, what was your sorry? I interrupted. No, no. It's the okay. actual question was what? It was what were your parents doing when they were the age that you are now? And maybe like tell a little story about what you understand to be their experience at, you don't have to say your age if you don't want to, but 30 or whatever. You can, you can say, you can, anybody can answer, so. Whitney, maybe? Um, well, um, they were probably, my mom just told me a story today about, or my, told my kids the story today a little bit um, about when uh, my dad was sort of second-guessing all of the things that they were taking on um, at the time that they had two small children and they had bought a piece of raw land and there was nothing there. Um, they started with literally nothing, no electricity, no running water. They had a tent. They, it was too cold for when they, bought, when they had the tent and they, they built a dirt floor shack and then they lived on a boat for six months and then they built this amazing, beautiful home that Caleb mentioned that you've used to film some stuff. And, yeah. Um, and so at the time that they were approximately my age, they were, they were doing that, um, building shelter and taking care of kids and having jobs. My dad's a geophysicist and he does building on the side. Um, and so when people are, uh, when people say to me, oh my gosh, I can't believe you have four kids and you live in a 400 square foot <laughs> house and you know you have jobs and your husband builds and he's doing this on the side and this and that and you have a, one hot plate and a small toaster oven to cook with right now for six people, I say, well, let me tell you about my, what my parents were doing at this time. So um, you, it's, it's not, you, you can do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apropos, it seems, yeah. Yeah, so, and it, so it's interesting, the parallel sort of, mm. it's like, like mother, like daughter, like father, like son, yeah, somewhat. A lot of generations, I mean, had that different way of living, of course. And yeah. it's just massive how things have exploded in, yeah. some, in our lifetime. Yeah. How very few things people had at some time in the past, yeah. not and too long yeah. ago. And I, firsthand, I know that As we you, sit in this place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of those. Yeah, yeah. Firsthand, I know that how, how little we need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's good to know that. I think it's good to know that. I like things, don't get me wrong. Like stuff, and yeah. I, I'm a, I'm, I do that, but I, I also know that you don't need it. I've been collecting like only small things now, like nothing bigger than about an inch. So if I want one of these tables, I have to find one that's about that big. <laughs> yeah. I have some very small chairs as well. I guess, I think I don't, I don't, no dollhouse though. Mm -hmm. I, I think if I think back to where my parents were at about, at about this age, I'm gonna play around with the timelines a little just to make the story better. Um, I, I grew up the, the child of a hard rock miner, a uranium miner in northern Ontario. And we lived in a, uh, in a city there that was uh, in the 70s. Uh, in the 70s was the sort of mining equivalent of Fort McMurray. Uh, it grew from a shack in the woods to 22,000 people over the course of about a decade. 
Um, and at the time, the, the, the kind of, of, of city building that was going on around resource communities in, in Ontario specifically was, was very wild west. And so when the town that I grew up in uh, was, was being developed and being planned, the, the, the Ontario government decided that they would bring in the eminent uh, uh, planners and, and, and thinkers about uh, city building of the time to, to lay this out and design the city as, as, as never before and that the mining companies would come in and build all of that housing. Now, it's 1970, and so the, the, the leading edge thinking around city building is uh, pretty much your, uh, your standard suburb where you cut down all the trees and name all the streets after them. <laughs> um, layer on to that a mining company, which brings a very, you know, th these are typically the companies who are building uh, housing for their employees with ATCO trailers, now trying to, uh, to think about suburban development. And so we had two types of house in town. One was a uh, semi-detached um, back walkout. The other was a row house. You got three vinyl siding colors you got to choose from. It was either beige, a sort of a baby blue, or something that was a bit of a muddy red color. Uh, and that was the city. Uh, as far as the eye could see, uh, cheap tract housing uh, uh, that, that housed all of us. Um, but for most of my life, it was, it was actually quite sublime. But when you reach a point where you're sort of 14, 15 years old, uh, mining towns start to get really dodgy uh, for, for, for teenagers. Uh, it's great to play in the woods, it's great to fish, uh, but around 14 or 15, fishing doesn't, uh, fishing gives way to meth. Let's put it that way. Um, and so it was a really good time to be leaving, but I think you know, it's, it's, it's impacted the way I, I, I look at cities from the get-go, because I think those, it, it, it reminds me that the, the leading edge thinking around city building at the time is probably 30 years from now going to be at least partially wrong. Um, and it also it sort of, it, you know, one of the reasons we were, we were leaving was because the mines were closing and everyone was leaving. And so it really, it, it struck that it strikes me looking back on it today, how it's impossible to sort of build some of those artificially, build some of those community, those, some of those pillars that hold communities together um, through and, and create resiliency through those sorts of situations. And so that really comes through time. It comes through, through a sort of a variety and, and, and diversity in those communities. Uh, and it's just really, it's, it's something that sort of affects how we, we think about and, and, and move forward in, in the city today and in the other work that- I went to Sudbury work. once, which I think was a nickel yes. mining mm -hmm. uh, town, yeah. It was a kind of an odd place, yeah. There were like pockets of emptiness everywhere. Yeah. And I kept hearing, um, for some reason, since I'm not Canadian, I don't know, I kept hearing Joni Mitchell songs in my head, sort of sad Joni Mitchell songs as I walked through this. And I remember one thing that was uh, interesting was my little pensionat that I was sleeping in was next to this giant water tower. And so when I went for a walk, I thought, oh wow, I'll, I'll just remember that water tower because you can see it everywhere and I can always find my way back. So I went walking and I looked up, there was the water tower, I went to it and my hotel wasn't there anymore. I was like, where do, it's impossible, it's, it's next, to, it turns out there's two identical water towers <laughs> in this town, and so I guess people don't use them actually as landmarks because they were <laughs> absolutely identical, but the towns did feel odd, how there was this kind of huge zone just over the horizon where there was a huge hole in the ground yes. that was 10 times bigger than the actual town itself. Yes. Like there was, there was this object and then there was a hole. <laughs> Intellectually, I think people, somehow have to deal with that. Yeah, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting slice of Canadiana because so much of, of where we come from is about the extraction of those resources and sometimes we forget about that when yeah. we sit in the middle of Victoria and yeah. most lovely furniture. Yeah. I also think that um, the early days of, of Canada would have been a, a, sort of a place to try out new ideas about the city 
and about building and planning, because it's basically a blank slate. Um, and so it's interesting to think that the cutting, cutting edge ideas of the day maybe start to fall out of date, but that goes back to what I think Whitney had to say, which was like, what do we need? What do we need to live? Jill, you know where your parents were? Um, I think they would have had three kids huh. and were living in a yellow trailer in the Kootenays. So, where? <clears throat> uh, in a town called Creston and then Grand Forks, so two very small towns. But I think like one key difference or like point of, I guess, inspiration that I take from them is, you know, nowadays in entrepreneurship, you, there's all this structure to entrepreneurship. You do a business plan, there's courses you can take, you get to an incubator, an accelerator, and mentors and coaches. But at their time, it's just, you just make it happen if you can. And there's, you know, you face a lot of failure, but, um, but my parents were very poor and then they were entrepreneurs and, and they did well by that, but they really valued hard work and, and still do. Um, my dad to this day doesn't sit still even though he's retired. Um, so I definitely, you know, when people f feel sorry for me because maybe one day at my business I worked a 10 hour day, I'm like, you know, I don't feel sorry for me. <laughs> I just don't, I think it's quite good. And, uh, and I think we have really great lifestyles now, but um, I think just the hard, hard work and determination and the joy that can actually come from that is, uh, is something that I definitely take away from my parents' time. And, and uh, yeah, they, they weren't always working to not work. They were working right. for the joy of, of building and creating something and, and changing their city to make it a better place. And were they, they, were they working with their hands? Were they build, were actually building? They were doing all kinds of things, but they were you know, road constructing and working with the city and you know, big, my backyard was giant excavators. Wow. So it was uh, very different. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there's a picture of me in this like huge excavator and I'm just sitting in the bucket. Like, <laughs> thumbs up, you know, but. Hey um, dad, can I drive the excavator? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The like, yeah, I came I'm up going, halfway to I'm, the tire. Yeah, I'm going the tires, to the dance so. with a date. Yeah, exactly. I need to borrow it for grad. Uh, so d definitely different times, but I think that the uh, one thing I do see is, is the, um, sometimes the determination in entrepreneurship dwindles it with the new generations, or maybe it ebbs and flows between generations, hmm. or something like that. But, um, but yeah, I think they were, they were very, very hardworking and, and uh, very dedicated to the place that they lived and, and built something from nothing. But hmm. definitely different times, different living standards too. Yeah. When my parents were my age, uh, all of their nine children had left the farm. Nine, did you say nine children? Yes, I was the oldest of nine. And when you say left the farm, you don't mean that metaphorically, like they no. went crazy. No, no, <laughs> no. I, I mean it like literally. We lived on a farm, and like okay. your, like your father, my father also built his own house, and uh, but he built a suburban three-bedroom bungalow, and um, my parents uh, did everything. They, uh, I grew up on raw milk and my mother's vegetable garden and her potato patch and all of, you know, they used to take, literally, I, I'm old enough that my, my dad would take the wheat that he grew to uh, the mill and come back with flour. It's like, that's what I grew up with. And um, my dad uh, was very proud that all of us lived to adulthood. That was all he expected for us. Wow. <laughs> and, what, is the, um, what age is that? What, we, what age is adulthood? When we left home. Oh, and that so was the whole purpose of, you know, like, leave home. Okay. 
And so uh, it's kind of ironic for me that I work with contemporary art. And um, mm -hmm. so uh, my parents, like your parents, uh, were very hardworking and there was a real joy in, in doing the work. And I think all of us in our family have kept that. It's just a great pleasure. And I don't know what it was about going to art school, which I went to art school when I was 23, but I felt like I was returning to something because we had a lot of freedom. We could make stuff or you know, do whatever we wanted because obviously Ed and Dorothy were also happy to kick us out of the house. They didn't want to see us because it was just too intense. So we just did whatever we wanted. It makes me think perhaps they weren't expecting that much out of being parents, just to get the child to the point where it's out of the house. I feel like as a yeah, parent, wouldn't totally. so much of the pleasure be watching the child go off and... Oh, they liked us. Okay, well that's good. Mm, At least they there was that. that. <laughs> um, but what? I do remember one incident when I was uh, younger, the Gardner Dam was being built at the, on the Saskatchewan River. And uh, I remember going to this site where all the engineers lived, where there was this suburb in the middle of the prairies. I just thought, oh, maybe that'll happen on our farm. Mm -hmm. But of course it didn't, but it was so bizarre to see this. You know, there, nothing was paved in mm -hmm. those days, but it, was a, it had curbs and sidewalks and houses, and it was mm -hmm. unreal. Hmm. I, well, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I might as well answer this question as well, just for, for context, because my mom was here in the room today. And um, I, at, at uh, <clears throat> my age, my mom had just gone through several different homes with her family, my two brothers and myself, and had landed on Salt Spring Island, um, and was actually, I guess at this age, just learning how to be a single mother. Um, and so she'd gone from a farm on South Africa, or in South, from farm in South Africa to moving to the UK where my older brother and I were born, then moving to Fort St. John in northern British Columbia, and then kind of looking for a nicer place to live because he was a, my father was a doctor. And we settled on Salt Spring Island, which I'm sure many of you know. And um, things went a little bit sideways, and um, my mom ended up a single mom with three young boys. Um, I'm not sure how old we would have been at, at this time, but probably four, five, and six. Three boys on a farm on Salt Spring. It was a full house for her. Wow. Um, how many cows? Um, we had, <laughs> well, we know. just got to the farm before things went Could big. have been alpaca farm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just assuming cows. I wish there were alpacas. <laughs> in those. There were lots of deer. I remember, yeah. I remember a lot of deer on that farm. Um, but there, anyway, the reason I wanted to ask this question was because I feel like we all sort of like told the little story and took a trip down memory lane or nostalgia with this kind of like idea of this, this past and, and what it was like and what it would have been like. And what, I, what I've been thinking about recently is how, what kinds of timelines we as a, as a, a culture are trained to think on and, and trained to sort of like project and understand. And um, because I want to know, I want to know what contemporary is. Like what, 
what, what does it mean to have culture that's now or culture that's alive as opposed to like named, codified, and put into a book or into you know, some, something to observe and, and try and understand. So um, that, that, was, that was why I asked that question. I'm, and I'm wondering, for, from each of you, maybe stories or, or, or any way you choose to answer this question, but like in your daily life, how far ahead are you generally planning? I have an interesting um, uh, story to tell. So I have one brother. And he's, he's older than me, and he was always uh, very close. We were very, very close. And um, he was brilliant, genius, really. He never studied. He only partied. And he always got, you know, he graduated top of his class. And I really looked up to him. He was just a fun guy. I hated introducing my friends to him because they would become his friends and they'd forget <laughs> about me, all of that. So um, anyway, uh, he had two degrees, one in Russian literature and one in civil engineering. Like, wow. you know, how does that happen? And uh, you know, we came from a from a unusual family. My, neither of my parents had an education after the age of 14 years old, so they they never finished grammar school or whatever that's called, middle school. And uh, they lived with foster homes and, and all of this stuff. Um, so to get us both through college was intriguing, and my brother was always an inspiration to me. But your question about contemporary, uh, I I answer first. I think because my brother about 25 years ago, I guess. Uh, he had a very unusual lifestyle. He, he, would, he had his own company, and he would work like hell for sort of six months of the year. And he'd do all of his work in six months, make all of his money, and then the other six months, he would take off. He lived in Texas at the time, and uh, he, he, would, he, he can fix things. Like, he was like Johnny Appleseed of fixing things. <laughs> so, so he would travel. He speaks Spanish fluently. He would put, fill his pickup truck, fill with uh, machine parts, drive through Mexico or, or Colombia or wherever. And if he saw a broken tractor, he'd pull over and he'd fix it. And then the people would be like, hey, why don't you come stay with us? And he'd stay with them for a couple of days. And great. And then he'd get back in his car, and he'd find like a washing machine that didn't work, and he'd fix it. And that's how he met people, and he did that for six months. So in order to do this, he, uh, he would have to fill his car with, with junk parts. And he was in a junkyard um, uh, trying to fill his car up on a hot Texas day. And suddenly, he fainted. And um, he told me the story. He, he, um, he woke up, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. He couldn't move, and uh, nobody was there to help him because he was in the middle of the junkyard somewhere. And um, he couldn't figure out what to do, and as he looked up, the buzzards started to circle. Mm -hmm. They landed. He, he tried to keep the buzzards away. He couldn't anymore. He thought he was going to die. Eventually, he got the feeling in one of his hands and an arm. I guess who knows why. He smoked cigarettes, so he said, okay, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna have a cigarette, this is it. <laughs> so, he, so he reaches into his pocket, smokes a cigarette, smokes another cigarette, and after the second cigarette, suddenly he gets all the feeling back in his body. <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on, and he's you know, got drool coming out of his mouth and everything. He gets in a car, goes to the nearest doctor, they do a scan, they find out he's got an aneurysm in his brain. Most people die when you get an aneurysm, but he didn't die. So they said to him, okay, we're going to have to operate because you're going to die. There's just no question you're, you're dead. You should be dead already. But the problem was they didn't know the result of the operation. So they did the operation, and unfortunately, as they predicted, there would be a problem. And he lost all of his short-term memory. 
and your question was about contemporary. So he has, mm -hmm. no, uh, he has no ability to remember things from just a few moments ago. Um, you can talk to him, and he'll talk to you just like we're talking now. He still is who he is. He has his personality. But if he heard a, a kind of snap or something over there, or he needed to go to the toilet, he'd walk back out of here and go, like, where, where the hell am I? You know, he, he would not remember a thing that happened five minutes ago. And this is how he lives his life. So his version of contemporary is pretty fantastic because it's actually literally just the moment in time that he's in. And as soon as it goes away, he doesn't, it doesn't matter to him anymore. So he lives his life, and he's very happy. He doesn't remember what happened before, doesn't necessarily care what's going to happen next because he's not going to remember that either. And he's moving through the world just kind of building up images of the now. And so I love to be around him. Um, because it, it, the timeline thing yeah. is really quite fascinating, and you can learn so much from being around him. Can I ask, when you spend time with him, do you have conversations? Or yeah, like this. He, we would be talking. He's still brilliant, and he still remembers all of his math, and he remembers his family. I'm part of the long-term memory, so you know I'm I'm there. Um, and you would, and but but you know if if like I say, if something distracted him, then the then the then the thread is broken. Right. Um, and so he, he's built his life. Now, I, after 25 years, because we're close, I put him in his own apartment uh, two years ago. So he lives on his own now. And he builds all these models to live because he has to figure out, you know, when do I wash my clothes? He doesn't remember. So he has like all these complex mathematical formulas on his wall with little sticky notes that he's always moving around. And his whole life is a math problem. Um, otherwise, he can't exist. Um, because, you know, he has to go to the bank and he has to, you know, do everything on his own. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my point was, I want to bring this up because your question, I think, is an interesting one. You know, what is contemporary? Um, you know, we, we, we use that word as a buzzword quite a lot. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, this is very contemporary. But actually, no, this is probably now about 40, 50 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, is that contemporary? Or, you know, we, we confuse the word often, the, the stylistic notion of modernism in design with contemporary. Contemporary really only means something that happened now. Mm -hmm. Like now, now, not now, then. <laughs> Which is why my brother would not be able to conceive of a now that's not right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, 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 I believe if you really want to take that word and really make it juicy, you know, you really have to bite into this moment that we're in exactly right now and how special it is just to be here. And that's contemporary. <laughs> Wow, that is an incredible, incredible story. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, sorry, I didn't mean to get too heavy there. But. No, I mean, I, th I think it's fascinating, in particular because it seems like you learned a lot from him about the way that <clears throat> you speak about him and observing him. Yeah. And I remember reading about this condition when I was studying psychology. And I forget the name of it. Um, but I was studying it in an abnormal psychology class. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I mean, and that's generally what you call, you know, somebody with a quote-unquote deficiency, some yeah, yeah. sort of some sort of thing that's broken or not quite right. Yeah. And it's interesting that it's when the thing is broken that we learn the most from it. Right. It seems. Absolutely. And. And I think, obviously, there are so many things about the brain that, that yeah. we have yet to learn that all of, you know. So here's another thing that you could look at it from a design perspective. So because my brother can't remember, 
you know, where the light switch is or, uh, you know, how you're supposed to sit in something or what the table means or whatever, that table different from this table. Um, I can design stuff and just like let, let him go and see how he maneuvers and then take him out of it and then put him back in and see if he does the same thing again because he's, he's, he's doing it without the memory of having been do in there just a few minutes before, right? Yeah. So he's like the best test case example. I'll take him to my buildings and I'll like say, okay, Scott, I'll see you in a little while. And I follow him and see where he goes. And so I noticed that um, because he's only thinking in the now, in the most essential contemporary way of seeing things, you know, his body takes over. And all of us use our subconscious in really interesting ways. We just don't ever give it justice. We always think about our conscious. Mm -hmm. um, but his subconscious takes over and, you know, if he needs to find a toilet, he'll do what most of us do when we look for a toilet, which is find a door in the back somewhere or a staircase going down or up or something. We rarely would look for a toilet here in the middle of this room, <laughs> right? So there's like, it's in, in, in our system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of those things affect how I see design because I see design working in the moment. And if it doesn't work in the moment, and it's either too much related to the past or too much an expression of the future, then mm -hmm. it's not about us. It's about an intellectual exercise or a theoretical understanding of who we are. And while that's cool, I like it, but it's not who we are really. Mm -hmm. you know? I think the, the concept of contemporary, it's interesting with the example of your, your brother, the, the concept of contemporary is um, it, it's, uh, it's very much about the here and now, but I think it's interesting if we look at whether it's uh, whether it's architecture, music, art, those those uh, areas where we are continually pushing for the new are also continually reaching back to the past for inspiration mm -hmm. and, 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 and growth. And I think that um, it's it's uh, you know uh, it, it's a it's a it's a key importance. I think you know it, just drawing on the allegory of your brother having never met him. So please excuse me. But, He's kind of like me, but even more forgetful. <laughs> but, I think, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting because the, that, the, the, the lack of short-term memory currently gives him a, a, a unique perspective. But having uh, half a life of memories that are, that are still, still embedded, yeah. And it creates a sort of a, a DNA to, to sort of draw That's from, correct, yeah. Uh, is, is a, it's a really important piece of it. So I think as we're, you know, again, as we're pushing for the new, as we're thinking about new, new aspects, the, the, the connection with the past, the connection with... <clears throat> those that sort of learned experience and uh, collectively mm -hmm. uh, is an important one because it helps to to ground us as people it helps to sort of build on our collective experiences and so that's you know that's sort of the, an interesting rub when we think about what what when we look at the, the, the today and so I you know it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to, to get your perspective on it from the perspective mm -hmm. of, of, of uh, contemporary art well I think that you're exactly spot on and you're you know your brother does have this basis of knowledge and I think uh, the past, I think, is always uh, with us, whether it's the ghost at the side that, uh, in, you know, affects how you, how you might think about it, because we all bring that to what we see in contemporary art or uh, experimental music or performance art or it, new dance or whatever. I, it's, I think it's there and often unrecognized because we kind of live in an amnesiac society, I think, well, and we forget and suppress. And, and that was, you asked two questions. Mm -hmm. One, the other one was how do people see timelines, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I come from a generation where when I was younger, I was, you know, yeah, I'd listen to Frank Sinatra, or I'll listen to something. I had no idea who they were, but they were like albums on my parents' shelf and I liked them. 
And, and, and it didn't matter that they were you know, 50 years old. Today, if you ask somebody about a musician that's 50 years old, you'll be lucky if you can get, I don't know, the Rolling Stones or something. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, and I think they're now like 90 years old, aren't mm -hmm. they, the Rolling Stones? Mm -hmm. They're so old. Anyway, <laughs> um, my point is that you say that we live in an amnesiac society, and I agree, but I think now the challenge is that we have so many images, mm -hmm. and we have so many objects, we were talking about this earlier, we have so many ways of, of requiring and, and, and assuming input that it becomes really hard to dig deeper into oh, something yeah. that, is, that is not in your face. Mm -hmm. Because we're, we're, we are, in a sense, being managed by the things that we've made. Absolutely. And they're, mm -hmm. they're, you know, what was it? I, somebody, Einstein or somebody said that, you know, we, we must be aware when technology um, uh, overwhelms humanity. And, and there's, a, there's a level in there where we're kind of creating this amnesia yeah. as a coping mechanism. Yes. Mm -hmm. Gets, yeah. That's interesting. These are, like, it's really amazing to hear these little bits and pieces of echoes of things that I've been thinking about coming out and thinking that, or just the talking that we're doing here. So I would imagine, <clears throat> Whitney, with a whole bunch of kids running around. You don't <laughs> have a lot of time for devices and technology. Oh, yeah, I use my device. It's good it's handheld. <laughs> <laughs> but are your hands not holding all sorts of kids? I, yeah, or I do. Yeah, there's a lot. Bags or um, whatever else? Yeah, and I, I use the technology to an extent, but I also abhor it. Yeah, love-hate. Um, yeah, I, and I, I, I want to keep my kids as far away from, as it, uh, from it as I can. Um, I think it's a good tool. Um, and as a librarian, I'm also dealing with this from an educational point of view with my kids, too. Um, and I think it's only good if we use it for what it's good for. Mm -hmm. um, but there's so much that we're just pushed with just, just to use it for because it's there. And what everyone was saying, or what you were saying, uh, is that uh, I think we're, we contemporary, like there's too much in our face now. We can't even listen to a whole album of music. It's mm -hmm. the song that is a hit or a bit this, of a song. this week. Even just yeah. a portion of and, the song. <laughs> um, and, uh, and nothing is sort of whole. It's sort of all little bits and pieces. I've even noticed with literature, books are being written from, mm. and the chapters are split up, and there's like little bits of email and yeah. little text mm -hmm. conversations. And it's so that we can, because people's attention span seems to be lacking a little bit now, because everything is so more new now. There's like 12 seasons of clothing at the Gap. and. Um, I, I think we need to slow down or we're going to, I don't know, backfire. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I, I agree. And then, but then sometimes I hear this voice in my head saying, oh, your parents probably said that about yeah. me. Like, ah, you know, there's that damn yeah. Janice Joplin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's speeding up to a point. I'm, I'm a little worried for, yeah. my, for my kids. I don't know. Because you can't hold on. You need to be a little bit more rooted. You need to have some sort of, I, yeah, I, think, I don't know. I, I, that's. I think we're all too willing to accept whatever comes through our devices as reality, or as some version of like what the world out there looks like. Because I feel like less and less people are watching the old school news or you know, reading the news, daily local newspaper or whatever. 
and they're consuming a, we're consuming a lot of media through our devices, and somehow that is understood to be an impression of what the world is like well, I out just, there. Yeah, I just wonder when, it's, when we're going to stop actually doing things and start only talking about, talking about, reacting to, whatever, things that are, that are only online. Once or everything just goes into the cloud. Yeah, when is it, like, real experiences, at some point, they're gonna, we're going to spend too much time. Hey, so, I like the like that you liked. So I, I have this theory that if everyone spent 10 more minutes a day in the toilet, we'd be a lot happier, because yeah, it's maybe. one of the few real things we you have can left. Sit and just like, <laughs> doing funny. this, I'm so making something. Yeah. It's funny, I, it's fu it's, sorry, it's funny to, to, to hear you say that, um, and to hear you talk about the way your brother worked, doing oh, yeah. six months a year, and then, um, and then six months, whatever you wanted. I have friends, who, things, yeah. I have friends mm -hmm. who have a debate podcast, mm -hmm. and they just debate stupid stuff. Um, they're very brilliant guys. They're both comedy writers. But one of the debates they had was, it would be better if you could get all of your bathroom duties out of the way in one go, like once a month. Oh, no, I wouldn't like that. <laughs> so you just have this, like... It's like saying you should get all your sex done, like, one night, which would be great for me, because even one night would be fantastic. It's like bees. <laughs> it's how yeah. bees work. It's all one time. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, for the queen, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's interesting because when we think about, you know, we think about those devices, we think about our, our, those connections. It's interesting, there was an interview with Steve Jobs in 2009 where just as a throwaway line, the interviewer says, your kids must really love the iPad. It had just come out. And, and he just immediately popped back with, oh, no, my kids aren't allowed to use the iPad. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, that's, I think that's somewhat telling. There are a number yeah. of Silicon Valley <coughs> CEOs who spend mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of dollars a year, a year to put their children into schools yeah. that have no screens whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's interesting. I think what, what, what troubles me more about, uh, mm -hmm. uh, about that situation, though, is, is, is the editing of your, of your life, the, mm -hmm. the way that you can parse down the interactions you have with the outside world to only those things that fit your particular viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a challenge. It's not, we're not getting a collective experience where we all meet next, the next day at work and have a discussion about what happened on the national yeah. or what happened yeah. on Hockey Night in Canada. And so I think it puts, it puts more emphasis on the, uh, on, on the, the real world to create collective experiences. Sure. And so when we think about the city, we think about the way we design things and we think about public spaces. Mm -hmm. And so opportunities, whether they are sort of the big festival that happens every summer within your town that helps to bring people together, or their little five minute, uh, call them urban bathroom breaks, mm -hmm. uh, where you've sort of, uh, you, you're created uh, situations where you can interact with other people and create collective experience in a face-to-face -face situation. I think those just become more and more important. Um, well, you know, I, just to uh, be a fly in the soup for a minute, um, or devil's avocado, or whatever it's called. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, at a, at a certain level also, the collective tends to gear towards similarity. So we find ourselves more often in collectives of people that are like us. Mm -hmm. And uh, you tend to get segregation building up within the collective. Even when you find collectives that are like you, uh, you'll start to segregate in strange little ways. So, so the, the collective sometimes builds up as much uh, misunderstanding as the, uh, as the so solo, soloist, I suppose, who's at home freaking out on the screen all night or something. Um, I'm not saying that I am super happy with all the way in which we share things with each other now, but I also am hesitant to, because there's that little voice going, you know, 
were we so perfect? Or it'll no, be it'll be okay. Yeah, okay. And was was my parents so perfect? And were their parents so perfect? And mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is the world, their world, that one that we sort of see with this nostalgia with the newspaper and the nice plaza and everything. Well, they had racism. They had you know, mm. they had huge issues with the economic understanding. Huge issues with environmental understanding. They had like gigantic problems. Mm -hmm. And they were meeting together and making things and ironing and living in little huts in Vermont and stuff like that. Mm. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think, it, personally, I, I, I think to, to deal with society, you can never, you can only deal with yourself. I guess that's a kind mm. of a Buddhist thing. You know, like, just get yourself together. And, and it's the same with, na you know, nature. Like, you have to, we talk about how we're going to, deal with the challenges that the world faces in natural conditions and sustainability and so on. And I always say, you know, if you can't get human nature under control, you're never going to get mother nature mm. under control. It's like, mm. you know, if you can't figure out how to live your own life and set an example for others, then, you know, we're just kind of kicking the can around. <laughs> I, I feel the exact same way. I think, um, I think a lot about sort of well, I think a lot about the future and the kind of space that I would like to live in, the spaces I would like to occupy, the things that I would like to see happening, and this is one of them in the city. And I think that trying to, uh, trying to wrangle too much or impose too much control seems like a way to make yourself, make yourself crazy, to think that you're going to be able to guide a thing so precisely there. I feel like you mean like a city. Well, I, I or mean anything. Like, I, I mean anything. I'm thinking. I'm thinking in my own life in terms of like my career or my relationship or my, you know, my the food that I eat or any, or whatever it is. I think trying to control it so precisely seems like a recipe for for disaster, <laughs> right? Yeah. In, in, for disappointment. Or for yeah, for yeah. disappointment. Uh -huh. But yeah, maybe disappointment's okay. I, th I, th I think disappointment <laughs> is okay. Disappointment's better than disaster. If we have lots of little disappointments, <laughs> yeah, yeah, as opposed to one big disaster, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that, that's probably a good way to go. But cities, I'd love to hear your opinion because, um, you know, cities are such strange things. They're historically these, almost like a legal system, right? The mm -hmm. city was developed because of, of hierarchies and structures and legal needs between people and, and all these kinds of models of behavior being implemented within them. I think in many languages, even the word for city is simply legislative boundary or something like mm. that. Um, and I always say to myself, um, you know, to, to plan something, like when we talk about master plans, I even hate to use the word because it sounds like master, where's the, where are the slaves? If we got a master plan, there's gotta be some slaves <laughs> nearby dealing with the master plan. And so I, I try to call them passion plans or something better because it sounds a little softer. But um, I come to sometimes joke that, you know, the best made plans never really get laid. You know, the more you more, and that you can look at that in multiple ways. Um, but uh, <laughs> how, um, how, you know, how do you come to terms with the need to help, which is what planning is kind of about, like I want to help, to um, the other side of that, which is I want to, you know, control. Right. Which is the sort of foundation. And, you know, and for, for example, the word metropolis has two roots, mother and citizen or police, which is now mm. what we call our police. Your mother is the most controlling person in your life. She's the one who 
takes you, she gives you birth, she, in, in your smallest time, she's the one who can make or break your future. Um, and the police are the people that manage us directly. And so, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that since you work with that sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balance. And I think, you know, um, you know here in Victoria or in, in other places, you know, we're really trying to look at the, 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 the art of planning as, as, a, as a process. It's a process that brings lots of different actors together to help build a sort of a, 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 you know, a generalized collective vision of where it is that we're all trying to get to. And I think, you know, it, it's, um, it, it's a, it, in some ways it's a fool's errand. Um, but I think where we get to, to certain, uh, where, where we tend to get to certain situations, whether they're nationally or at the city level or even just amongst a group, is if we all sort of have a general idea of what it is that we might want to get to, we may, we may disagree about how it is that we're getting there, or we may disagree with, uh, you know, is it this far or is it this far? If we're all kind of swimming uh, like salmon, uh, at least on swimming on the same stream to some extent. To our death. To our death. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, it's, that's, that's, that's humanity. Yeah. Um, that we're all moving in that direction that hopefully we can, we can, we can get somewhere that, that, is, uh, uh, that, that works a little better. And I think, you know, but there is that push-pull between control and, and, and sort of uh, facilitation. And I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant one. I think we're in a process right now with the city of Victoria where we're trying to control less. I think, you know, Victoria is um, perhaps... You got that on anybody recording that? It's being, it, is, it is being recorded. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, Victoria is a bit Victorian uh, in the sense that, <laughs> that we, have, we, we have lots of things here that, that like to tell you specifically what you can do on what particular day. Uh, no, this, no, no, this is a small city with 800 different zones in its zoning bylaws. Uh, so individual... Uh, and so we're trying to get past that, trying to reach a point where we're sort of saying, well, what's important, what do we need to hold on to, and what can we just let go? Yeah, I've I found that planning this bike ride that I've been working on, trying to... Just get the permits, man. Just get, we'll give them to you, just get them. I am not <laughs> doing it permitted. I've tried to go through the permitting process. You and, didn't get it? And I, and I was referred and referred oh, and wow, referred and referred and referred, and eventually I just sent an email saying, look, I'm doing this ride. If the police would like to be there to make sure that people are safe, cool. If not, we'll be safe because we'll be taking care of ourselves. Wow, that's cool. It's an amazing world now that when we have to consider a, a bicycle ride something punk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going out there. I'm riding my bike, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I am, it's funny that you use the word punk because I think that I don't think that, I, I think people confuse punk with spiky hair and yeah, yeah, leather yeah. jackets, but I think punk is an attitude. Yeah. yeah. It's a kind of fuck you attitude. <laughs> and I don't, but I don't, I, and, I, and I have that attitude inside me in a lot of ways because I, I look at other places a lot and I, and I have a lot of things that I'd like to see and I'm like, that's cool or this is neat. I don't want to do that. And then I butt up against the system where I'm like, I'm a gen you know, a law-abiding citizen, and I want to do things right. And I don't want to rumple feather or ruffle feathers or whatever, but I also, I want to see stuff happen. Because, I mean, Victoria's been known for a long time as a pretty sleepy town. I'll be right back. I'm going to a few might, minutes in the might, toilet. You might want to turn the microphone off. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, 
our, our garden suite is a pretty good example. Um, the 400 square foot footprint that we're living in. Um, and it's a good example because it took us two and a half years almost to go back and forth with all the paperwork as sort of citizens who aren't professionals in that we, we at the very end hired an architect to finally just get the plans spot on. Um, but the rezoning process was huge. It was expensive. We didn't know what we were doing. We, it was sort of play by play. And we've built our garden suite. It's an amazing, beautiful space. People uh, peer down our driveway and, and actually walk down to come and ask my husband about it. We've had lots and lots of people just kind of gawking. Um, and it's a wonderful space to live in as opposed to some sort of basement suite. Um, it's, a, it's a boon to the neighborhood. It's a boon to anyone who'd live in it um, as a renter, as people who live there. Um, but the process was very difficult. And now Victoria has done away with the rezoning. Yes. So yes. now they don't have to do what we did, yes. which was a huge process. But I feel like that's sort of a good thing because possibly through the rezoning and through all the back and forth and all the, what the city's seen with the rezoning and what we've experienced, someone learned something mm -hmm. and something great's happened. Um, and it's making it more of a feasible opportunity for people yeah. to it's, do. It's, it's a so I think that's sort of an example of yeah, the, the, the push and pull, but wanting to do something positive and seeing the, what the goal is and the potential and saying, okay, well, let's make this more streamlined. How, how, how can we make this happen? I, I'm, I'm also curious. The, your garden suite is timber framed, right? Yes. It's built with no nails. No metal fasteners for the frame of it. It's, all, it's all very, yeah, and it will last forever. It's, it's kind of, it, it, it stands to none. Um, how, did the, how did the city feel about that? Well, the city, um, they were great. And we had to have an engineer sign off on it. That's part of the whole process, the building permit aspect of things. And um, everyone is blown away by it because it's sort of a, an anomaly. It's not an everyday kind of uh, building process. Um, and, but it was, it was fine. It was great. And, mm -hmm. and nobody was like, I don't think so, or like this straw hut won't work. Or <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's, it's sort of the, I think that's how they built all the, Mm. buildings in Europe that are still standing that are how yeah. old? Uh, like, yeah. I don't know, yeah. 500 years old yeah. or whatever. Um, and it's, I hope that people might see this. I was speaking with someone in planning in Saanich because we're looking to see if we could do this somewhere else. And I was talking to someone in planning in Saanich and they were so excited to hear, of, <laughs> hear about our, 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 our story and, and how we got there and how it all worked and, and just about the timber frame and how we, how we worked with City of Victoria, how it was, how uh, the, last, the last final thing that was uh, the back and forth between the planning and us is, um, sorry, you're gonna have to resubmit the plans because you don't have the elevation drawing of the garbage enclosure. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and so, you know, those little things, yeah. those are all the little things that you have to deal with, but we plowed through and we did the elevations, the elevation plans of the garbage enclosure um, so that we could get the building permit, so we can, mm. you know, go ahead and live you know, in our space. I have a really funny story I have to share with you. It's about a building we made in Berlin in, in Germany. 
And one of the walls of the building, we decided we were going to make it out of a solid piece of stone, one piece of stone, unbroken, uncut. It was uh, meant to be um, about 15 meters high, five meters wide, and um, about a meter thick. So it weighed around 80 tons. And uh, we proposed this thing, and it was going to hold up the roof and everything. And um, we uh, said it in a meeting, and everybody, like architects, they're just crazy. And we said, well, you know, how do we know that it's crazy? Because you, people used to build mm -hmm. big pieces of stone mm -hmm. like this. They said, well, even if you could do it, it's going to be too expensive, they said. Well, how do you know? Nobody's done it. Anybody at the table actually moved a piece of stone like this? No. And so finally, the only way we could deal with this was to um, go down to the quarry and talk to the actual quarry person, mm. you know, a person with like huge fingers, like the size of carrots. <laughs> and uh, we told him, hey, we need a piece of stone, you know, 10 meters by five by meter. Is it, you know, can you do that? Yeah, I can make it bigger, he says. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so then um, we did some calculations, and it turns out, including the cost of transportation, it was, in fact, cheaper than building huh. a stone wall because mm -hmm. you have to cut all the little bits of stone, yeah. you have to put them in boxes, you have to reconstruct them and put them together. So then everybody was like, um, they couldn't argue against it because not only was it cheaper, it, it also worked. But then we got to the building department in Berlin. And they said, well, is this a natural stone? And we said, yeah, it's getting carved out of a quarry, big piece of stone. Uh, they said, well, if it's a natural piece of stone, how do you know that it can hold up the roof? And I said, basically, because it's bigger than sin. You know, it's gigantic. <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll, it'll hold it up. And, uh, and, and they said, yeah, but it's natural, so we can't test it. Like concrete we can test. You know, other things in wood, even in certain environments, we can test. But we can't test a piece of granite like this. Um, so you're going to have to test it. So I said, well, how do we do that? Well, you have to take this piece of granite that's this big and put it in a machine and put a bunch of pressure on it until it breaks, and then we'll know how much pressure it can take. <laughs> I said, yeah, but then it will have broken, and we won't be able to use that one anymore. And we'll have to test the next one in exactly the same way. So it was this really weird cycle. Um, this kept going until um, finally they agreed uh, to let us do it if we added columns on either side to, to be there. So um, they didn't trust the stone. So we, put the, we took the thing to Berlin. We carried it through the street of Berlin. We took it down this amazing canal. We hoisted the damn thing up in the air, dropped it in place, built the roof on top of it. it, it because it was under construction, it wasn't yet needing the columns. We saw that it held the roof. The building inspector forced us to put in the columns. So there, we put them in, but we made them removable. Mm -hmm. and, and so that um, hopefully <laughs> one day you could just pull the columns out and the stone will hold the roof. But it, it, it just goes to show you that, you know, how carefully orchestrated everything is. And, uh, you know, the wood, the wood joints without uh, nails, you know, it's not the first house to ever be built like that. You know, why must we treat it as an anomaly? Mm -hmm. um, it, it because, a part of it is also the fact that we don't allow for too much professional judgment mm -hmm. in the world. So if you're an intelligent person and you've studied engineering and you look at this thing, you go, yeah, I know this can work. But you work inside the building department, you're not allowed to, uh, to say that because yeah. it's not legally quantifiable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of boxes and, to yeah. check. It's, it's, a, it's a particular mindset. And, and it's, um, 
you see it within governments, you see it within within other organiza organizations. It's you know that sort of combination of legal liability and all those sorts yeah. of things that come to bear. Um, the other side of it too is that you know, and, and we say this from time to time, and some of the people who come talk to me and and, and try to get applications through the city are, are, are here tonight. Um, not everybody <laughs> we work with is as sophisticated and, and talented as uh, sure. the folks here tonight or yourself, Craig. Yeah. And so we are sort of having to... No, I get it, but you could probably make a judgment. But, but then I, people would held, hold you accountable. Exactly. And they'd say, oh, you're prejudiced against this group of people because they like you know, stupid-looking sculptures on their building, and these people don't, you know, something like that. I, I know, it's, it's a weird problem. This is a problem that we have. The society is just messy, and I guess it's yep. always going to be messy. But I think it's, it's, it's an important question to figure out what's important, what do, we need to, what do we need to regulate, and what are the things we can let go. And we, we dealt with this a, a couple of years ago. The, the folks in, some, some of the folks here probably know the folks from Topsoil. Uh, came through the door. These are, this is a, a group of folks here in town who, uh, you know, just grow things uh, in the urban realm for for, uh, for sale to the restaurants in the, in the city. And they were working with some of the folks over the, the I believe, uh, on Fourth Street. They wanted to grow something on a roof of a commercial building. And the first inclination of the staff in my office was, well, that's not an allowable use in the zone. <laughs> and so we all went, we all kind of went, wait a minute, wait a minute. We grow things every day. If, this was, if these were amazing. flower boxes, yeah. we, wouldn't give, uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't give a care in the world. Okay. If, it's, if it's lettuce, somehow we think that that's different. Yeah but, <laughs> yeah, but they're buying and selling it. Oh, my. But it's in a commercial area. So, we'll, so we can buy and sell things on the ground floor, John, but on the roof we can't. And so we, we, we sort of walked ourselves through this mm. situation where it was like, okay, how is this any different? How is this any different than anything else that we allow it to do? And then you kind of walk yourself back, but it's a different mindset. And mm. it takes that, asking that question, and, and sometimes it's just easier to read off of the regulation and say, nope, it doesn't fit. Mm. Do you know, we're doing a lot of sustainable design now, a lot of things related to energy uh, preservation and so forth. And of course, zoning codes and everything were not built upon that. They were built upon issues of relationships of objects to one another and how they relate in the bigger scheme and, um, or the spaces between objects. Um, so if you really want to make, for example, we had to make a building, in a zero energy building in Norway. And in, in order to make that building as, as high, highly effective as possible, it needs to be shaped around the sun and the, and the, and the, and the movement of the sun. So it, the shape of the building is really weird looking because it's all related to how the climate affects it did not fit into the zoning rules. Right. It's like, no, a building has to you know, do these. It can't do one of those. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so we've had to, we had to rewrite all the planning legislation in this town. They actually opened it up the door. But it's intriguing to think about future zoning needs related to energy mm -hmm. uh, consumption, where if you had to have a building, say, that actually was shaped in order to be environmentally proficient, just think how weirdly different all the cities would, would mm -hmm. look. <laughs> and, and, that, and that makes me think, like, if a flower garden or a vegetable garden on a rooftop is going to trigger some sort of crazy tizzy in a bureaucracy, <laughs> what happens when buildings that look radically different or are built radically different or are, yeah. or are, so, are, or, or are so far outside the, the, the realm of allowable use that you, there, there's almost no way to to assess them. I, I think, I'm just worried that <clears throat> we're being sensitized as a culture towards this culture of 
legislation, and so that we stop thinking about what could be and what was what's possible instead of you know what we're actually going to be able to do. I was on a jury once for the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, and there were ten architects on the jury, and there were twenty-five lawyers because this represented the whole of the European <coughs> Central Bank system. So every time I would say, oh, I like this project, it's beautiful, old 20 lawyers would jump up and go, quantify beauty. <laughs> you have to say specifically why you think it's beautiful, because we need to know, we have to write it down. I'm like, oh, right. God. And, and, you know, and it was like the most masochistic conversation <laughs> I ever had. Like, it's beautiful because of this, 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 uh. and this. Oh, I think this one's terrible. Why is it terrible? Quantify it. It was astonishing. Well, I think, I think we're, we're coming into an interesting period where, you know, I'm, we're actually coming, I actually think we're coming out of uh, <laughs> a, a system of, of, of sort of over-codification. Uh, it's slow. It's mm -hmm. probably much too slow for many. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're coming through a period where 100 years ago, let's, let's, let's imagine what cities looked like. You had mm -hmm. a tannery next door, mm -hmm. and what looked in pictures like snowdrifts were actually just horseshit. Um, and so these were the kinds of situations we were dealing with within our urban realms, and we yeah. pushed. We pushed for 50 years yeah. to separate those things out. Um, and we have a tendency as human beings to think that you know, a, making up for a deficiency of something, mm -hmm. um, me, if that's good, then an abundance of that thing is better. You know, uh, if you don't have vit enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. And so by, we, we think then that now an abundance of vitamin C is actually good for us. Mm. Unfortunately, an abundance of vitamin C just gives you flatulence. So we, we go through the situation where making up for real deficiencies and real health problems in our cities, mm -hmm. we moved to increased space, separating land uses, uh, you know, uh, those sorts of things, and we went, we went too far. We, we, we pushed it, we moved into the suburban realm through the 60s and 70s. We're slowly coming back from that, we're slowly letting go, letting things mix together, but it's not, it, it doesn't move quickly. Yeah. And we have these things, I, you know, again, I have regulations and things that sit on the books that we have to refer to every single day that are 40, 30, 40, 50 years old. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that's and, crazy. But, but the time it takes to update them and dig into mm -hmm. all of them and meet all of the different stakeholders and then deal with members of the public and the community and, and our counselors who, when you say we want to change this, when we say, you know what, it's a really onerous process right now to put a garden suite in. We've only got, we've had the, the policy there that says we allow them for seven years. We've only got 30 of them built in the entire city. It probably is an easier way to do this. This yeah. is not a big impactful thing. Yeah. And what we get from the community is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this is awfully close to my, my backyard. This is, what if this happens? What uh. if this happens? And you go through that process with your stakeholders, and your counselors go, well, what if that happens? Well, this, this, this is the sensitization that I think that we do as individuals and as a collective when we start to imagine things that are unfamiliar or start to experience things that are unfamiliar. We like check ourselves. We're like, hey, I would like to do this. And you're like, Ugh, it's never, you know, I'm never going to find the right people to help me. Or I want to do this, but I don't have enough of one thing or another. Or I want to do something, but I know it's never going to get through this process. So I just think it's really important that <clears throat> we find ways to focus on the essential and like sort of just let let the rest of it be 
I feel like we should all Diverse be knitting. This is get, turning into like one of those bitch knits. Where they, <laughs> like 10 people knitting and like, I can't wear it. I think going back to the discussion we had earlier about the contemporary, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned by looking actually backwards. And when we think about the way cities are built and how they sort of they, they work, when we look at older mm -hmm. cities and we look at how they, I was in New York three weeks ago having a really great breakfast at a Montreal-style Montreal deli on Bond Street. Next to me was a welding shop. Yeah. where some guy was arc welding five feet from the sidewalk. Next to that was uh, a place to buy very high-end um, French denim. Uh, so if you're looking for $350 jeans, great spot. Um, and that just worked. And it worked within, because the, 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 grid, the, the grid structure of New York and that, that, uh, it, 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 that holds things together mm -hmm. and allows things to kind of mix in between. And mm -hmm. so it's really, what are the important things? What are the things we need to pin down and say, that's the stuff we need to stick with? Yeah. And the rest of it, we can just let go and let God. I think, I think, uh, I like the sound of that. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm curious about like how, you know, in your case, you have neighbors who come and, and say, this is beautiful, I want to see it, it's abnormal, right? Mm, yeah. And what is it, like, what is it that makes something abnormally good versus abnormally something I want to complain about mm -hmm. to the city yeah, and get, this, get the person who is doing it in trouble. Mm. Yeah. And I think that a couple things about, first of all, form versus function is huge. Uh, how, how, what, uh, beauty versus, like, does it work? Um, and also uh, an organic way of mm -hmm. making things actually really come together properly. Like, the suburban model of like, let's, we need to have the village center, so we're gonna have our little subway and our little, you know, whatever the newer, nicer sandwich shops are that <laughs> are the franchise of the day, um, with the little neighborhood, with the little cul-de-sacs and this and that, but that's not organic, it's sort of pre-conceived mm. con as a whole. I, I think New York is old enough, big enough, cool enough, <laughs> I, guess, I don't know, that, it, that it's all come together like that and you have these just interesting uh, juxtapositions. And I also think that with architecture, um, I think that you can't just level five blocks and say, let's get up to speed with the contemporary model and make everything good and proper and nice and this and that, because then it all looks the same. I think that a city needs to have those old cool buildings because by the way that, that's usually the developer oh okay. although it's the I've... architect that's the implementer oh right <laughs> so i agree the architect is not absolved of guilt here but there is other am i making you feel guilty no i'm always guilty my mother's jewish um uh, no i'm just saying that you know in a sense it's a complex mix of oh, economy totally. that yeah. drives the often uh, hazing of, and raising of, 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 of communities. Right, and, but how do you, is that the question? Like, well, how do you do that? Well, I think you can push back. We push back, so we'll, you know, we'll, but you have to push back in an intelligent way, otherwise they just think you're goofy little architects who uh. just like stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you have to show them how it, it return, you know, how they'll get a return on their investment from either being generous or from protecting and preserving things and pr providing mm -hmm. authenticity. Right. And if they can see that there's a money equation yeah. attached to what you're proposing, a developer will, will, will follow. But it, obviously it's about balance then, yeah. right? Mm.
You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com. 